So tonight I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, which is one of the core of the Buddhist teachings. And very briefly, the Four Noble Truths are that the first is life is dukkha, the second is that the cause of dukkha is trishna, the third is that it is possible to escape dukkha and attain nirvana, and the fourth is one finds attains nirvana by following the Noble Eightfold Path. That, that in very brief form of the Four Noble Truths. Um, and I'll just point out the way they're organized. It's about suffering, what causes suffering, freedom from suffering, and what causes freedom from suffering. So that's kind of the plan of the Four Noble Truths. So the first one, the the statement, life is dukkha. And sometimes dukkha is, is poorly translated by the single word suffering. And then it sounds like Buddhism is saying life is suffering. And it, it makes Buddhism sound very pessimistic, you know. Life's horrible, then you die unless you're enlightened, you know, like this kind of thing. And that's not the spirit of Buddhism at all. I mean, really, Buddhism is saying something much more like life is a miracle packed full of miracles. And the problem is we walk around so wrapped up in ourselves we don't appreciate the miracles, you know. So the first thing to appreciate about the first noble truth, when it says life, it's really talking about unenlightened life. And in particular, the life of someone who has done virtually no spiritual work. You know, if someone has done, experienced no growth or no spiritual work, they are completely subject to the dynamics of dukkha. You know, and insofar as we, we have any kind of maturity that we've, we've uh, had growth or we've done spiritual practice, then we have relatively a certain amount of freedom with respect to dukkha. So dukkha is a technical term and it means a few different things. It First of all, it is the discomfort that we have because pleasure and pain are always attached. The yummy stuff in life and the yucky stuff in life are are inextricably intertwined. And it's just our mammalian tendency. We want to pull yummy stuff toward us. We want to push yucky stuff away from us, you know. And and we're always we're always um frustrated by the fact that whenever I try to put yummy stuff toward me, there's some yucky stuff that comes along with it. Whenever I push yucky stuff away from me, I'm always, I always wind up pushing some yummy stuff away from me also, you know. So part is just the, the frustration in the, the, inter, the, the entanglement of, of what we like and what we don't like. Um, part is just the fact that in the phenomenal world, no object brings us ultimate satisfaction. You know, the, the Buddhist way of saying that is all, all objects bear the mark of dukkha. You know, none of them can bring us ultimate satisfaction. Another way to say it is that dukkha, it's not only the fact that pleasure and pain are always intertwined, but it's all the fantasies, the expectations, the 
the strategies, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the mental constructs that we create either to try to avoid the dynamic of dukkha or to try to outsmart the dynamic of dukkha, you know. And that, that, that whole process of, you know, being in this very strategic place of, you know, boy, how do I, how do I rig things so I get as much pleasure as possible and avoid as much pain as possible? Like that whole strategizing way of approaching life is itself unsatisfactory, you know. So dukkha has many different levels. And the second noble truth is that the cause of dukkha is trishna, which is often translated as attachment or craving. Um, literally, it means thirst. And it has this, this very visceral feeling, you know, this, this thirst we have, this visceral wanting for what we want, this visceral not wanting what we don't want, you know. And so there's a lot to say about dukkha. Um, the first thing I'll say is that it is not, it's not absolute or, or rigorous, you know, in the sense that we do have a certain amount of choice. We, we have a certain amount of choice to, you know, if I make healthy choices, choices that come from wholesome qualities, then I'll tend to have slightly more pleasure, slightly less pain. Whereas if I act in very dysfunctional ways, I'll probably create more suffering for myself, you know? So we have a certain, we have a certain latitude within dukkha to choose more pleasure or less pleasure, more pain or less pain, you know? But it's the nature of dukkha that that choice is limited, no matter how enlightened my choosing is, there's going to be suffering that I'm going to have anyway. There's going to be pain that nails me somehow. So how does dukkha play out? One way it plays out in our lives is, is by fantasy. And of course, you know, especially when people are young, they tend to have, you know, some people have very fantasy-driven lives. You know, I'm going to find the perfect place to live, the perfect job, the perfect set of friends, the perfect lover, you know. Um, insofar as we have a certain amount of maturity and experience, we start to see through those things and realize that nothing really is perfect, you know, and that a lot of, a lot of life, a lot of, you know, job and relating to people is about compromise. And it's about trying to find situations where on average, there's more stuff that I like than, than I don't like, you know. So as we mature and develop some capacity, we, we tend to become a little less fantasy-driven. But fantasy is funny. I think fantasy is, I think we're always um, prey to some kind of fantasy, you know? And it's, it might not, be, might not be everything in our life or our whole way of looking at things, but I, my sense is that fantasy is is almost inescapable in some way. Like, it just is, it's so much a part of how the mind works. Um, you know, just imagining, boy, when I walk into this situation, I'll have the right thing to say, or the, you know, or the blah, 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 or everyone will like me, or, you know, whatever it is. 
So fantasy is one of the ways that it plays out. Another way that the dynamic of dukkha plays out has to do with the relative range of how much we allow ourselves to feel. You know, and again, the the fantasy is I'd like to feel everything pleasurable in life and I'd like to feel nothing painful in life, you know. Um, but that's not an option. And really the only option is, the only thing that I do have control over is that I can either make myself very numb and shut myself out from a lot of emotional pain, but I also shut out a lot of pleasure in doing that. Or I can open myself up, feel life much more intensely, feel the joy of life much more intensely, the rapture, but also feel pain and sadness much more intensely, you know. And it's funny because even at the extremes, you know, insofar as I make myself numb to shut out pain and then shut out pleasure also, often if I'm living that way in that numbness for a long time, it's lonely, it's stifling. And so there's a pain that comes just from numbing myself and living numb for years, you know? And and alternately, if I'm wide open and I'm I'm feeling feeling everything intensely, then part of what I'm doing is I'm feeling grief and feeling sadness and feeling anger and all these the, the more difficult side of emotions. At least what I've experienced is that even when I'm feeling grief, of course the, the grief is hard. But there's also a feeling of I'm being truthful with myself. And there, there's something that feels good about being truthful of feeling my what I'm feeling, even though what I'm feeling is not is not pleasant, you know. I'll say also, I think we live in a society in which many people have have chosen some kind of numbness, some kind of numbing themselves out. Um we live in a very head-driven society. People like to, you know, go up into their heads to escape their vulnerability. Um, so that, there's, there's a lot of that dynamic. Relatedly, the dukkha dynamic also plays out in the dynamics around what um, Race Mamenikin calls clean pain versus dirty pain. He has this wonderful distinction. Clean pain means the emotionally difficult thing happens. I face it. I'm honest about it. I deal with it. I feel through everything I'm feeling. And then I'm done with it. You know, that's clean pain. Dirty pain is when the emotionally difficult thing happens. And I say, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to bury that, you know. And the thing about dirty pain is it it superficially feels like a win. It superficially feels like, haha, I outsmarted the pain. I didn't, I didn't have to feel it. But of course, when we bury pain, then that pain continues to cause discomfort in our life. It continues to cause dysfunction in our life. And, and, you know, it's almost like credit card debt. We wind up experiencing far more pain than we would have if we just faced it directly, you know. And that dynamic is is particularly tricky when it comes to early childhood trauma, because in early childhood, 
you know, especially in infancy, nobody has the capacity to face trauma, you know. And so really our only choice in infancy was was the dirty pain option of burying it and and not facing it. And pain that gets buried in early childhood tends to, you know, get wrapped up in our 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 attachments and our our primary relationships, you know. But I'll say also that the dukkha dynamic is one that's very much present in the logic of healing, you know, because our tendency when we're when we're aware that we're carrying pain around, especially pain from early childhood, our tendency is just to run in the other direction, not feel it at all. The lo- the logic of healing is the paradoxical. It's about healing actually happens when we move toward pain, when we engage our pain, when we're curious about our pain. Um, I often say that the logic of healing is dominated by by the dynamic of having to love what feels unlovable, to accept what feels unacceptable, and to forgive what feels unforgivable. And it's by doing that hard work of healing that we actually come to a much more rapturous experience of life. So again, this this very paradoxical um, tangling of what we want and what we don't want. The, the final um, final dynamic I'll talk about is spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing often happens when a person, you know, maybe they've, they've read a lot of spiritual texts, but they haven't really worked through their own stuff, you know. But they go to a place of, look how enlightened I am, look how spiritual I am, you know. And then, if, you know, so they're, they're talking this talk about, I'm so spiritual, but then maybe they're doing these passive-aggressive things or doing these needy things or, you know, triggering people these, these other ways. And then if someone calls them out on it, you know, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, then, then, they, then they, you know, respond with a, wait a second, you're, you're angry. That doesn't sound enlightened, you know, like this very spiritual way of undercutting criticism, you know. And it's, it's understand, how can I say, from some po- in some ways it's so understandable that that dynamic would evolve, you know. We're, we're so deeply programmed to avoid pain. And... You know, it's so tempting, especially in our verbally driven society, to want to, you know, talk ourselves into, look how spiritual I am, you know. Um, But it's very sad, you know, insofar as I'm not honest with myself, I have the potential to cause harm in the world, you know. Any way that I'm not being fully honest with myself. I have a potential to cause harm. And so that's always something to look at. And to just look at the the strength and the depth of of the Trishna, the the clinging, the craving, the clinging to, you know, all the clinging we have, the clinging to the to whatever pleasure we're holding on to, the clear clinging to whatever defense we have. Um 
Buddhism would say, ultimately, the deepest clingings are a clinging to the illusion of ego itself, to the, the illusion of separateness. The fact that, you know, the illusion that there is a separate mic, separate from all other beings, you know. And then that mic can, you know, be lonely or feel aggrieved or, or you know, etc., etc. So the third noble truth is that it is possible to escape this whole cycle and attain nirvana. Nirvana is a, it's a word that comes from the Sanskrit to extinguish. And the literal image is that the separateness of ego is, as it were, blown out the way a candle is blown out. You know, it's a very dramatic image. And so a few things that I want to say about nirvana, because I think there are a few um, major misconceptions about nirvana. In order to talk about one, I'll say that one point I heard this wonderful talk from the poet David White. And David White, he he's a practicing Buddhist, so he's gone to, he's gone to, you know, meditation groups for years and talks for years. And he commented that in so many communities, if the person at the front of the room is talking about in, enlightenment or talking about nirvana, if you just listen to the whole talk, you could substitute the word for the word enlightenment, you could substitute the word immunity, you know, immunity from pain, and the whole talk would still make sense. You know, in other words, the person is talking about enlightenment as if it's as if it's immunity, as if it's freedom from pain, you know, as if it's a get out of jail card for everything that is hard and challenging about life, you know. And that's not what nirvana is at all. Nirvana is not an escape from life in any way. Um it is a it is a feeling fully of life it is a a yes to life to to everything about life the the wonderful stuff the miserable stuff just a yes an unqualified yes to everything um yeah and it's not it's not in any way a escape from everything that is painful and everything that's difficult in life and quite quite the opposite it is an an embrace of everything that is that is painful and difficult the other thing i'll say about enlightenment or or nirvana is i think there's very much a tendency to think of it in terms of like Zero, zero or 100, either we're completely not enlightened or we completely are enlightened. I think the, the Christian ideal of heaven kind of messes with our idea of nirvana a bit, like either you're not in heaven or you are in heaven, you know, either you're, you're not in a nirvana or you are in nirvana, like this, this, you know, all or nothing kind of approach. And I, I think it's much more helpful to think in terms of nirvana that is something we we approach in in stages to some extent, you know. I mean, any of us 
I'm sure all of us have had experiences when there's just some moment, you know, when our when our own needs are relatively well met, we're watching some scene unfold where we're really, you know, we, we have no dog in the fight, you know, we're just we're just watching it as an observer and we're just kind of balanced taking in the world as it's happening, you know. Um Now, of course, it's much harder to have that balanced witnessing place, you know, when when I have unmet needs or when I'm in pain or when I'm feeling aggrieved or, you know, whatever, to still be in the place of witnessing. That is that is harder and that takes more capacity. Um, but really honoring all the moments that we just are truly awake, truly alive um and i think one good word to keep in mind with respect to this is simply the word flow like when we're really in flow we're usually we're usually free from fear we're not even thinking about fear we're usually we're usually you know just just vividly present in whatever is happening in the moment and so those word you know, flow is often a state where we're touching this kind of vivid experiencing of life as it is, you know. And it, it may be that at some higher spiritual states that there are breakthroughs so that we can hold hold the flow or hold the witnessing in a much more powerful way. Certainly, certainly the classic experience of Kensho in the Japanese tradition where the, you know, the breakthrough moment when, when suddenly the world becomes hyper real, sort of breakthrough real in a, in a way that had never been before. Um, you know, certainly those moments may exist, but I think it's important to, to acknowledge that we're in some way laying the groundwork for those by all the times that we're just, we're just present in our everyday life. Master Dogen talked about, you know, sitting in meditation insofar as we have a moment that we're just fully present in meditation. That is a moment of enlightenment. You know, that's why in a meditation community, people bow to each other at the end of the meditation is because Buddhas have actually been in the room, you know. Now, the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Noble Path, is far too much to talk about at this point. I'm actually going to devote all of next week's Dharma talk to talking about the Eightfold Path because it's a gigantic topic. But I'll say very briefly, the steps of the Eightfold Path are right understanding, right effort, right thought, right words, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that's the that's the eightfold path, the step by step path for becoming enlightened. Um, I'll talk more about that next week. At this point, I'll share the quote sheet. Let's see. So I have a brief statement of the the Four Noble Truths at the top. 
And then, I, then this kind of idiosyncratic quote from, from Papa Walt. I perceive that to be with those I like is enough. To stop in company with the rest that evening is enough. To be surrounded by beautiful, curious, breathing, laughing flesh is enough. To pass among them or touch anyone or rest my arm ever so lightly round his or her neck for a moment. What is this then? I do not ask in, for any more delight. I swim in it as in a sea. There is something in staying close to men and women and looking on them and the contact and odor of them that pleases the soul well. All things please the soul, but these please the soul well. And I just like that quote. I mean, this is a man who was totally in love just with being around people, you know. He loved people in general, you know. And there's there's something beautiful about that. Three very short ones from the the writer Wei Wu Wei. One of them is one I quoted last week. Why are you unhappy? Because 99% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. He also said, There is no mystery whatsoever, only inability to perceive the obvious. (laughs) And finally, he said, No one becomes enlightened. The term simply implies an absence of what you are not. In other words, awakening from the phantom identity into the normal state of what you are. That one echoes many, many lines in the Buddhist tradition. There's this famous line in um, in the Diamond Sutra where Subhuti says to the Buddha, what did the Buddha achieve at the moment of enlightenment? And the Buddha says, absolutely nothing. Then I have this quote, pain is part of life, suffering is optional, which is, which is a wonderful quote. And it's, it's funny because we really don't know the origin of that quote. I was, I was researching this a little bit. No one really, it, it goes back at least till the medieval period, but no one really knows the origin of it. From the poet Haifez, I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Laura Ingalls Wilder said, suffering passes while love is eternal. That's a gift you have received from God. Don't waste it. Proust tells us we are healed from suffering only by experiencing it to the full. Helen Keller said, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Khalil Gibran said, out of sufferings have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Paramahamsa Yogananda says, this life is is not man's own show. If he becomes personally and emotionally involved in the very complicated cosmic drama, he reaps inevitable sufferings for having distorted the divine plot. John Cage, the composer, said, Our intention is to affirm life, not to bring order out of chaos, nor to suggest improvements in creation, but simply to wake up to the very life we're living, which is so excellent once it gets 
one's minds and desires out of the way and lets its act of its own accord. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. Thich Nhat Hanh says, we have a tendency to run away from suffering and to look for happiness. But in fact, if you have not suffered, you have no chance to experience real happiness. Anne Frank said, the best remedy for those who are lonely, afraid, or unhappy is to go outside where they can be quite alone with the heavens, nature, and God. Incredibly wise words from a teenager. The Dalai Lama said, too much self-centered attitude, you see, brings, you see, isolation. Result, loneliness, fear, anger. The extreme self-centered attitude is the source of suffering. John Kabat-Zinn says, all the suffering, stress, and addiction comes from not realizing you already are what you are looking for. Karen Armstrong said, all religions are designed to teach us how to live joyfully, serenely, and kindly in the midst of suffering. Jack Cornfield said, to bow to the fact of our life's sorrows and betrayals is to accept them. From this deep gesture, we discover that all life is workable. As we learn to bow, we discover that the heart holds more freedom and compassion than we could imagine. Eckhart Tolle said, thoughts are fine when you don't confuse them with who you are, but then the thoughts are, are, but then thoughts are not a problem. Thinking is a wonderful tool to create this world. It only becomes problematic and a source of suffering when you confuse thinking with who you are. Janet Fitch says, loneliness is the human condition. Cultivate it the way it tunnels into you and allows allows our soul room to grow. Daniel Hansen said, you're only as weak as you let yourself become, and you're only as strong as you allow yourself to be. And Alicia says, never fears love absence in your life because it already exists within you in great abundance.